Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ down on the bayous of South Louisiana in that place called New Orleans. It is so good to be with you. It's just a tad different up here than it is down there. But I'm very glad to be with you today just to show you how little I travel. This is my very first trip to Athens, Georgia. What a joy to finally be in the Holy Land. And I, it's something that every preacher wants to do, and I appreciate so much y'all put it up with me. I do recognize, I, I, I know, that I'm probably more excited about being here than you are about having me here. I can just feel the moans and groans all over the congregation. Oh boy, a seminary president is preaching today. How lovely is that? Maybe we'll get an early start on our Sunday afternoon nap. Well, you never really know what to expect from seminary presidents and professors. I heard about one professor who taught New Testament, and every year he would always give the same final exam. Please discuss the missionary journeys of Paul the Apostle. Well, as you know, students talk about things like this. Everybody always knew what to expect. And the old prof came in to give his very last final exam before he retired. And as he walked in the door, Suddenly, he decided he would go out in style and change the question. Instead of writing on the board, please discuss the missionary journeys of Paul the Apostle, he wrote instead, please summarize, evaluate, and critique the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. Well, you could hear moans and groans all over the classroom. Some of the students wrote half-heartedly for a while. Some of them just turned their paper in totally unprepared. But back in the back right-hand corner of the class said Arnold. Now, Arnold had the worst average in the class going into the final exam. But he was back there writing just as hard and fast and furiously as he could write two solid hours he wrote on that exam. He finally turned it in, walked outside, and some of his friends were waiting for him. Hey, Arnold, they said, what in the world were you writing about for two hours on that examination? You weren't expecting that any more than the rest of us, and you haven't exactly been setting this class on fire with extra preparation. Well, Arnold said, I, I simply began by saying, who am I? A mere seminary student to critique Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount. I feel it would be much more appropriate for someone like me to discuss the missionary journeys of Paul the Apostle. <laughs> oh, I love it. He took what that professor gave him and he did something with it. Well, that's what I hope you'll be able to do today. I want to share with you one of the most amazing passages of Scripture, Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, open them, please, to Luke chapter 15. The title of my sermon this morning is The Prodigal Surprise, and I want to share with you some things that God has been teaching me from this amazing series of parables in Luke chapter 15. Let me just read the setting of these stories. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners gathered near Jesus to listen to him. And the scribes and religious leaders began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners, and he even eats with them. And out of that background, Jesus, hearing those who had been following the Bible all of their lives, grumbling and complaining because the people around him were the sorts of folks who don't show up at anybody's church 
on a Sunday morning, told three remarkable stories. Story number one, about a shepherd who lost a sheep. Story number two, about a woman who lost a coin. Story number three, about a father who lost a son. Now, the very interesting thing that I think I run into all the time is the image that people have of God. A lot of people imagine God is something like this guy in this photograph we're going to put up on the screen. God is really ticked off, really mad, really angry, really upset. This is one reason why a lot of people don't have any interest in God, because who likes to get yelled at? Who likes to be in the presence of somebody really angry? But this is the image that many people carry of God because they know that God is very righteous and they know that they are not. But that is not the proper image of God. You can just put an X through that one. That is not who God is. Now, please understand, God is always just. God is always, always just in every case, at every time, in every circumstance, in every way. God is just. He is not angry, but he is righteous. And God also knows that you and I are not always just or righteous. I have my moments. There are times when I do the right thing. But there are times when I do the wrong thing. My problem is not that I'm the worst possible guy I could be. My problem is I'm not always the guy I should be. And we serve an eternal righteous God who always does the right thing, who always wants us to do the right thing. And anything less than his standard of righteousness is worthy of his judgment. God is not angry, but he is always just. Now, these religious leaders had a very clear idea that God was just and that these people around Jesus were not. They knew that. The whole community knew that. But the really amazing thing that they had not taken into consideration is what God does because he is always just and we are not. What God does is to come looking for us, to come after us. The Bible is not a story of our search for God. It's the story of God's search for me and for you. And this makes all the difference in the world. The Bible does say that all of us are lost that we are separated from God. But I learned an important lesson in Chicago traffic. I was in Chicago with my wife. She had a professional meeting to attend, and I was on sabbatic leave from the seminary when I was on the faculty, and I needed to do some research at a library in Chicago. So we went together. She went to her meetings all day while I drove out to a library. I got her off to her meetings. I got a big cup of coffee, and I got in our rental car, and I set off driving in the city of Chicago. And I was absolutely amazed when within, oh, 60 seconds, 
I was in 12 lanes of bumper-to-bumper traffic. It looked something like this. I had no idea where I was. I had no idea where I'd been. I was just caught up in the middle of this moving river of cars, and I was completely lost. But you know what was really chilling? These were the days before cell phones or GPS units. And I'm sitting there. I have no idea where I am. I have no idea where I'm going. I am surrounded by all this traffic, and it dawned on me, nobody even knows I'm lost. Nobody has any idea. And no one was going to know for a long time. My wife was not through with her meeting until 5 o'clock that afternoon. And I learned there's something worse than being lost. It's being lost and knowing no one is looking for you. Here is the problem when you have a partially correct understanding of God. You know that God is just. You know that God is righteous. And you know that you are not. It never takes much effort to convince people that they are less than perfect. If you don't believe it, ask your spouse. You don't believe it, ask your children. They will be happy to tell you your imperfections. But what they don't realize is that our lostness is not a wall pushing God away. Our lostness is a trigger causing God to come search for us. And so Jesus tells these three stories. A shepherd has 99 sheep present, but he was supposed to have 100. When he counted them up and realized there was one missing, he left the 99 and he went looking for the one who was lost. A woman had 10 coins. Suddenly she realized only nine were accounted for. One was lost. And Jesus said she tore up her house looking for that coin that was lost. That father had a lost son, a son who came to him one day, did not want to have anything to do with his dad, did not want to be a part of the family farm, the family business, knew that when his dad died, he would inherit half of his dad's estate, split with his brother and said to his dad, okay, you're not dying soon enough for me. I want my half of your estate now. Can you imagine how that cut in the heart of the Father? You're not dying soon enough for me. I want my money now. And the Father gave him half of his estate. And the son left and never looked back. And what we found out later, that did not anger the Father towards the son It certainly broke his heart, but we know that he kept looking for that son to come back every single day. God is not angry. God is searching. He knows he is righteous and just all the time. He knows that you are not, but that is causing God to come looking for you, not to push you away. But the really remarkable thing 
is what Jesus said happens when that which is lost is found. And this next scene is a good picture of what heaven is like. You ever been to a party like that? And Jesus gives this image of what happens when the shepherd finds the sheep. Now, you understand, only one sheep wandered off and got lost. Ninety-nine stayed right where they were supposed to. When that one sheep got lost, the shepherd went out looking for him, had to look high and low. And when he found that sheep, what did he do? Did he say, you stupid sheep? How dare you wander away like that? Do you have any idea how much trouble you've caused me? I'm going to be late for supper. Mrs. Shepherd's going to be mad. You stupid sheep. No. He picked him up, laid him across his shoulders, didn't even make him walk back. That woman who found her coin tore up the whole house looking for that one coin. She finally finds that coin. What does she do? She throws a party for the coin. Okay, can you imagine throwing a party for a coin? Who ever heard of something ridiculous like that? So great was her joy in finding that coin, she threw a party for the newly recovered coin. See, my friends, it's very simple. It is the reality of our danger when we are lost that magnifies God's joy when we are found. It is the reality of our danger when we are lost that makes being found such an incredible moment for excitement. Never, never forget one Saturday morning, I was working in my office. My wife was speaking to a women's group on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain outside of New Orleans. She was coming back from that event on a narrow two-lane road in the woods of South Louisiana. And in front of her was a pickup truck with a bunch of things in the bed, including a mattress set, and it was not tied down properly. And suddenly, at 70 miles an hour, that mattress set and box springs came flying off of that truck right to her. At the last second, it caught the tip of her hood that pushed it just high enough up to go over her car and behind her. She would have been dead had it not caught the tip of that hood. She pulled off the road and she called me crying. I could tell she was very upset. And I immediately ran to my car. I drove, I will not tell you how fast I drove but the longest landing strip in the world is the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway for planes. I, I, was, I came screaming up to her, and uh, she fell into my arms, and I hugged her. I think I'm glad I didn't kill her. She finally had to say, please let go. I was so excited to see her because I nearly lost her. Came within a quarter inch of losing her. This is God about you. Because God knows how close he is to losing you. You don't come to him. You die. You head into an eternity of hell and separation from him. That can happen at any time. That can happen at any day. 
that can happen through natural causes, that can happen through an accident, that can happen through something completely unexpected. And God knows everyone who is without Christ is but a moment away from an eternity in hell and separation from Him. And when He finds someone and they turn to Him in repentance and faith, that party starts off in heaven because the reality of the soul's danger is so very great apart from Jesus Christ. There are several surprises in this parable. And let me just run through the four surprises that I find in this story of the prodigal son. It's surprising to me to finally realize there are two prodigal sons in this story. Now, here's the story again. Son, ticked off because his dad hadn't died soon enough, asked for his share of his inheritance, goes away. Father remains there in the home, and his older brother remains there in the home. Son goes away to a far country, lives wild, parties hardy. No one has friends like somebody with money to spend. And he spent his money, and he had lots of friends. Then he finished his money, and about the time he ran out of money, a famine hit the land. That drove prices up, made everything more expensive. He had no money to buy anything, and very quickly, he went from the partying life to wondering where in the world he was going to sleep, what was he going to eat, and the only job he could get was feeding pigs for a farmer. Do you understand how bad a job that is for a Jewish boy? The only job he could get, feeding pigs. He's feeding pigs and wishing he could have the food he was giving the pigs. It's so bad. He realizes even the lowest servant in his father's house had more than he had in those circumstances. And he decides he wants to go home. The prodigal son who went away and came back. But there's a second prodigal. Did you notice the second prodigal in the story? The second prodigal is the older brother. And what no one realized and what no one recognized is that he was just as much a prodigal to his father as was the younger brother. The younger brother headed for home, did not know what was going to happen. He knew he had one chance, one chance only. There is no plan B. He knew he had one chance and one chance only. That was to beg for any kind of employment in his father's farm. So he's practicing a speech. Can you hear him as he's walking that long journey back home, practicing, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I I'm not worthy to be called your son. If you would please just give me a job, I'll do anything. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Uh, I've really sinned against heaven. I've really, and just practicing that speech all the way back because he knows that is his one shot. And can you see him as he gets almost home and he stops before he makes that last turn for the driveway of the house, if you will, 
practices one more time. Father, I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'll fall on my knees. I'll say it. I'll put my face in the ground. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be a son. Would you just give me a job doing anything on this farm? Takes that deep breath. He starts down the driveway. And the father, always watching, sees him. Every parent knows how your child moves, don't you? He couldn't make out his face, but he could see his shape and his walk. And he knew his boy was coming home. Jesus said he ran. Now, I want you to understand, what did they wear in those days? Robes, sandals. This is an old man who ran to his Son, how easy is it to run wearing a robe and sandals? Ran to his son. The son drops to his knees. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against Does not let him finish the speech. Does not let him finish the speech. Grabs him by the shoulders. Pulls him up and hugs him. My son, you're home all I've ever wanted. Start a feast. Get the food going. We're having a party tonight. It's a celebration. Invite everybody. And all the festivities are getting underway and everybody's bustling around getting ready for the big banquet. And the older brother comes in from the field at the end of his day. Hey, what's the big deal? This is supposed to be Beans and Frank's night. Why, 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 why are we having steak? Didn't you hear? Your brother's back. We're having a feast to celebrate. Your brother's back. And the elder brother became very angry. Went barging into his father. How dare you? How dare you? dare you. He told you he wished you were dead. You gave him half of everything. Me, I've stayed here working all day, every day. Did I ever ask for anything extra? Did I ever ask you to throw a party for me and my friends? He's been gone. He wasted all of his money on alcohol and women and who knows what else. And he comes back and you're giving him a party. How dare you? The second prodigal had run away from his father's heart. He had no interest in his brother. He didn't think about him. He didn't care. He was just focused on living his life. The only emotion he had was anger because he came home and he had to deal with him again. He was so far from his father's heart he had run the opposite direction, not towards riotous living, but for cold, barren hate. And he was just as alienated from his father as was his younger brother. There were two prodigals in this story. 
Surprise number two, that either one would remain a prodigal. How long did it take the younger brother before he finally became so desperate he went home? He thought everything hinged on the speech he would give to his father of saying, I'm sorry. He had no idea his father was desperately waiting for him every day. All he wanted was for him to come home. Surprised that he remained a prodigal that long. And the very instant he was home, he was embraced and caught up and all was forgiven and he was part of the family again. A surprise that the elder brother would live in his father's house yet so misunderstand his father's heart. How could he watch his father's joy over the return of his brother and not feel at least some of it? It's a surprise that either one of those boys would be a prodigal with a father like that. Surprise number three is that the father was waiting. Again, people think God is just, I am not, therefore God is mad. In fact, God is waiting. Waiting with love and grace to forgive, to restore. Waiting to make all things new again. But surprise number four is that the world is really watching to see what we do. How long do you think it took everybody in the community to hear about the prodigal son demanding his inheritance early and running off. How long do you think it took for everybody to hear that? Everybody knew. How long do you think it took for people to know the younger brother had come home? Whose place did he pass before he got home? Who did he see on the road that was coming? And everybody knew. All the servants watching to see what the father would do. Watching the father, watching the brother. The world is watching. I want to close by putting a piece of art on the screen. This is Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. It's one of my all-time favorite works of art. Whenever you're looking at a Rembrandt painting, always ask a question. Where's the light? Because Rembrandt used light to draw your attention to what he wanted you to see. Where's the light in a Rembrandt? In this Rembrandt painting, you see the father. You see the prodigal son on his knees. You see the elder brother to the right. If you look carefully, you'll see between the father and the prodigal son and the elder brother, that floor is not an even floor. There is a little barrier between the two. Where is the light? The light is on the face of the father who is filled with such deep joy that his son is there. The light is on the father's hands as he is embracing that one who had gone so far astray and welcoming him home. And the light is on the face of the elder brother as he is sitting there wondering what to do now. And if you look carefully, you see other people right there watching 
to see what's going to happen. You know, it's really interesting. We don't know the end of the story. We don't know the end of the story. The story ends as the elder brother exploded all over his father and the father saying, your son was lost. He's been found. What are you going to do about it? Jesus told this story to the church crowd. That's me. That's me in that group that was complaining to Jesus. That's me. Lifelong religious leaders. That's me. And God is giving each of us a question today. Question number one. Are you home? Are you in the embrace of the Father? For if you are not absolutely certain that there's been that time in your life when you accepted Christ and turned away from your sin, why would you stay away from the Father one more moment knowing this is his heart? He is always righteous. You are not. But he has extended love, grace, and forgiveness to you. Will you not accept that? And if you are here today and you are away from the Father, away because you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, away because you got lost along the path and you've started down a road you know you shouldn't be on, come home. Come home. The Father is waiting. Question number two. Do you have the Father's heart? Do you care as much about the people who don't know him as he does? Are you living your life with the Father's priority on going out and looking for those who were lost. You are never more like Jesus than when you are searching for sinners and inviting them to come home. What a shame it would be to leave this service today without the Father's embrace or the Father's heart. Join me for a word of prayer.